0: Hey! Let's talk about food and music, eating and grooving, munching and moving, forking and spooning, listening to tunes, yeah, dinner's on soon, and to get ready for, ready for peanut butter and
1: jam. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with host Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9, exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood, and a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning, the endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the hosts, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's Peanut Butter and Jams.
2: Hello, and welcome. You are listening to Peanut Butter and Jams. I am Jordy, and with me is Brenda.
3: Hello. Happy New Year.
2: Yeah, I've been gone. I've, this is like my first show in like a month.
3: Welcome back, Jordy.
2: What What did you guys talk about?
3: Well, Kendra and I uh, did a show. Kendra, our correspondent, came on to co-host. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Christmas cocktails, and we interviewed the chef from Pert, the restaurant upstairs. Mm-hmm. And we talked about one more thing, and I can't remember what it was.
2: How would someone go about listening to those old episodes?
3: Very good question, Jordy. So you go to citr.ca, and you can hit the little hamburger menu, and then Mm -hmm. pick shows, and then find our show, and then listen to the podcasts. That
2: sounds great. I'm going to do that.
3: Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for listening, Jordy. That's me. (laughs)
2: Um, uh, yes, uh, so we have a great show planned for you guys today. We're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. We have a very special guest who is a...
3: A professor. An,
2: a professor and an expert on, I, I want to say, hedonic consumption. Yes. Which means eating, I think. And we will... But he'll explain it. Yeah. So.
3: And we'll uh, we'll talk to him at, uh, just earlier on in the show, in five or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about...
2: Oh, we're also going to talk about a carrot pasta sauce.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And the third thing is... Oh, yeah. I already
2: said that. New Year's resolutions. New
3: Year's resolutions, and especially ones to do with food. Yes. Uh, So to get us started, we're going to play a couple tracks of songs to get warmed up. And the first track we're going to play is called Ill Wind, a track by Jody Glennum. Jody Glennum
2: and the Dreamers. We'll mm-hmm. be
1: is planning to celebrate the Year of the Monkey in grand style during the UBC Centennial Lunar New Year Festival on February 6, 2016. This is your chance to get involved in one of the campus's largest cultural events. Call up for
3: Volunteers and Performers is on now until January 8th. Bring your friends, volunteer together, and get cool goodies. For more, check out diversity.ubc.ca.
2: And we are back. Uh, that was Michael and the Slumberland Band um, with their song Mystic Hope. And before that was Jody Glenneman, the Dreamers, with their song Ill Wind. Uh, we, have a, we have a guest in the studio. Brenda, do you want to introduce him?
3: Sure. We have Jan Cornille, a professor at the Sauter School of Business, and he studies food and pleasure. And we're really excited to have him come in and talk about his recent study
4: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me.
3: And you are a a newcomer to UBC. Can you tell us a bit about your story and and your background?
4: Exactly. So I'm French, as you might guess from my accent, and I was recently hired by UBC as an assistant professor in marketing, and that was uh, this summer, summer 2015. So I've been in BC very recently, and before that, I did my uh, PhD uh, at INSEAD in Singapore and in France as well.
2: Um, from uh, your description, I noticed that you are an expert in something called hedonic consumption. Can you explain what that is? Exactly. Exactly. So hedonic consumption is
4: a complicated word for pleasure. So my research is about pleasure. It's about how to be happy
2: and especially in relation to food. And uh, are you... Um, someone who are you someone who has a hedonic relationship with food? Is that, Am I using the word correctly? Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's all
4: my life. Yeah. Uh, pleasure, for sure, but also uh, food and uh, pleasurable foods. Uh, French food, for sure, but also uh, Asian food. And mm-hmm. when I was in Singapore, that was something extremely important to me. Uh, mm-hmm. East Asian food is probably my favorite food. And in BC, I'm very happy because you have such a multicultural environment and mm-hmm. I can
2: find all the foods that I like. Um, what what part of um, what part of uh, East Asian food do you like that you can find in like in Vancouver?
4: Oh, Japanese food, uh, Korean food. Uh, uh, recently, I've discovered a restaurant from uh, Xi'an, which is in the north of China. They have mm-hmm. very spicy foods there, and I really love it. Mm-hmm. What restaurant? Oh, I can't remember the name. Oh, okay. Well, it's in
2: Richmond, I think. Okay, we'll have to we'll have to get you back on and tell, <laughs> you'll tell us all about it then.
3: Hmm. Uh, so, can you tell us a bit about your study?
4: Sure, so in this study that was uh, published recently in a journal called Appetite, and my co-author's name is Pierre Chandon, he's also a, a French researcher, we were interested in the notion of food pleasure, and especially in the question of, uh, is food pleasure responsible for uh, overeating, uh, the obesity epidemic? And it's an idea that we uh, hear a lot, like if, uh, in, in order to lose weight, you should sacrifice the pleasure of eating. And perhaps because I'm French, it's something that I don't want to accept. I don't want to sacrifice the pleasure of eating. And I don't think that the pleasure of eating is responsible for an unhealthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did a bunch of surveys with uh, French people, but also American people from the USA. And uh, we quickly realized that there were, in fact, two kinds of pleasure of food. The first kind that we called um, impulsive pleasure uh, is related to um, your emotions. Uh, so most of the time, negative effect and mm-hmm. stress that you tend to confuse with a state of hunger and that makes you seek pleasurable foods in large quantity. Mm-hmm. So, that type of visceral, impulsive pleasure seeking is definitely related to overeating and unhealthiness. Mm-hmm. But there's another kind of pleasure that we can find in all cultures, actually. Uh, it's what we call Epicurean pleasure-seeking. It's people who seek pleasurable foods because of its refined taste, because of its symbolic dimension, because of its social dimension, uh, because of its aesthetic dimension. And these people, these Epicureans, they are not necessarily heavier. And as a matter of fact, they
2: tend to be healthier and happier in their lives. Um, can you uh, give us like concrete example of what that type of person might do like in a if they're seeking food for pleasure or is that like going to a fancy restaurant or making themselves something that's unusual or uh, like is that the sort of thing you're describing yeah
4: exactly so in the survey we looked at uh, uh, what type of restaurants people go to what type of food experience they seek uh, how they approach food And one important thing is that Epicurean eaters are not necessarily more educated, they are not necessarily richer, so you don't need to have money uh, to be an Epicurean eater and to be uh, happy in your life. Uh, It just comes from curiosity in what's in your plate that can be Curiosity for um, ethnic foods, uh, for food from other countries. You can also experiment yourself and cook at home. It's not necessarily expensive, and it all. I think it all narrows down to um, something, something called mindful eating. So the concept of eating mindfulness is uh, very important in food research, and it has also been uh, picked up by the media. And it just means that when you're eating you just pay attention to what's happening to your body and to your taste buds and to all the sensations that happen, the multi-sensory experience of eating. And I think that the reason why this type of epicurean and mindful approach to food is related to a more healthy lifestyle is that when you pay attention to what you're eating, you're actually more attuned to signs of satiation. And when mm-hmm. you eat less, you go for smaller portion sizes. So you can go for uh, probably uh, sweet or fatty foods. As, as long as it tastes good, tastes good, that's fine. But if you're mindful about your eating, you're going to go for smaller portion sizes. Mm-hmm. And I really think that, uh, and there's a lot of research which shows that, that the obesity epidemic is a lot related to the increasing portion sizes that we have in our environment and not so much about the fact that food tends to be fattier or or sweeter. It's it's, it's definitely the case, but Mm -hmm. portion sizes have a huge uh, uh, responsibility in uh, obesity.
2: Um, So would you say that, like, Epicurean eaters or foodies um, are, like, they all tended to be more aware of how big their portions were when they were eating, like... That was something that that was shown in the study. Oh yeah, definitely. So we show we show two things in our studies. Uh,
4: there is what we call in res- research correlational data. So we mm-hmm. try to find uh, links, statistical links, and we find that uh, people who rank high on an Epicurean scale tend to prefer smaller portion sizes of food. Mm-hmm. So that's the first approach. A second approach is an experimental approach where we try to teach people how to be Epicurean and how to be mindful of the sensations they get when they're eating. So it's just a five minute intervention in which we ask people, before they choose a portion size, to vividly imagine the sensations, the taste, the smell, the texture in mouth Mm -hmm. uh, during uh, three, four, five minutes. And after this uh, mental imagery intervention, by themselves, people decide to go for smaller portion sizes and they also expect to be happier with smaller portion sizes. So they don't cut their portion Uh, By sacrificing pleasure, they cut their portions because of pleasure. Because they expect that, and they are right, they expect
2: that pleasure is just as good when you have a smaller portion size of food. So people who tend to eat um, larger portions are people who don't think about the food as much? They are, it's just, uh, they're... Exactly. Yeah.
4: So it's really uh, going for larger portions or eating much more than what you actually need. Uh, what your body actually needs in terms of energy intake, that's clearly related to uh, uh, mindlessness and just not paying attention to what you're eating. Uh, If you're eating in front of TV, for instance, you're not going to pay attention to the food, you're not going to pay attention to signs of satiation, you're even not going to pay attention to the pleasure you might get from eating, which is very sad. So you you get all wrong if you eat in front of TV. You eat more and you experience less pleasure.
3: So the people in the study got to eat. You <laughs> fed them and then they chose portions?
4: Yeah, exactly. In, in some of the experiments we did, uh, we did an experiment in a restaurant, actually, uh, in a French restaurant. And we had that type of intervention on the menu of the um, uh, of the restaurant that the actual customers were receiving. Mm-hmm. And on the menu, there was this type of uh, intervention in which we told them, oh, this is a special restaurant. Before you choose your portion sizes, because they had the opportunity to choose portion sizes, Mm -hmm. try to think about what you're going to eat. Try to think about the sensations of the different dishes that we propose you on the menu and then pick a portion. And that's what we find. We find that in the case, in the condition where uh, people received that special menu, that uh, mindful menu, they tended to go for smaller portion sizes
2: the other menu have portion sizes available for them to choose? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's,
4: it's a typical setting of an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, randomly, we put people in different groups. Mm-hmm. So in, one, in all the groups, uh, they could all choose different portion sizes mm-hmm. of a dish. In one of the groups, uh, people received a mindful menu, a sensory menu. And that's in this group that we find that people limit their portion sizes. And in, uh, in another group, uh, people did not receive that type of in t- of uh, information. They were not asked to think about uh, the sensations of eating, and they tended to go for larger portions. And there was actually a third condition. We wanted to test the effect of calorie labeling. So that's an intervention mm-hmm. that uh, is done a lot, and it's also... a uh, in some countries, it's the law that you're going to have to uh, put calorie labeling on products and also on menus. And uh, in a condition where people received information about the calories, they, did, uh, tended, they, they tended to go for smaller portion sizes as well, but they were less satisfied. So it's 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 not it's not as good for a restaurant, right? So the restaurant's goal is to make profits. So you can make profit by increasing your prices and by and by limiting the amount. If you your want food. your customers to have a good time, so exactly. they'll come back. Exactly, you yeah. want loyal customers. Yeah. So finding a way to make people mindful, to make people epicurean, everybody's happy. Customers are happy because uh, they're more mindful about what they're eating. They are. Happy because they are healthier, they eat less, and for the restaurant managers uh, it it helps them manage their cost, uh, trying not to give too much quantity, uh, making customers satisfied and by the increase in uh, let's say the willingness to pay of customers, they can also uh, provide more quality and less quantity
3: and How did you find program participants? were they or study participants was that random as well, or did you hunt for specific populations
4: Uh, we have uh, several ways to um, to uh, have participants Uh, we do a lot of online studies with american participants and uh, so we just put a questionnaire online and we measure their reaction we measure their preferences or we can have actual people come to a laboratory a social science laboratory and uh, make them eat make them imagine eating and make them choose portion sizes so we had a large variety of participants, uh, French ones, uh, American ones, and it didn't really make any difference. And uh, You can clearly have an intervention based on uh, a mindful uh, imagery of sensation, based on epicurean approach of eating, and mm-hmm. that's going to work with uh, French people, with American people, and with children. We had an experiment with uh, five- to six-year-old children in a classroom, um, and we did exactly the same thing. Uh, there was... Randomly, we put them in different groups, and there was one group in which we taught them to um, imagine, to simulate the sensations of food. And there was a control group, and mm-hmm. they were asked to do something else. And then all the kids were asked to choose portion sizes of cake for their afternoon uh, 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 lunch. Uh, and, uh, and the ones that were trained to imagine the sensations of food, they tended to choose smaller portion sizes mm. of cake.
2: That's uh, very interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break and uh, listen to a song by uh, Strengths of Materials, which is a uh, Ford Piers' new project, and then we're going to be right back.
0: has passed I think I might have got up too
1: Registration for the AUS Humanities and Social Sciences Conference on Saturday, January 16th is now open. Come hear about all the innovative research that is being conducted by fellow undergraduate students. Anyone and everyone is welcome. For more information, please visit aus.arts.ubc.ca or check us out on Facebook.
3: So that was,
2: Um, that was Strength of Materials, and that song was called "The Star Chamber Phosphine"
3: by the Ford Pierre Vengeance Trio.
2: No, by Strength of Materials. Oh, that's what that's what this group is called, even though it's Ford Pierre. Oh, different. It's not the Vengeance Trio. It's his other project. It's his other project. Perfect.
3: Yeah. So we're here in the studio with Jan Cornel, professor at Sarge School of Business, and we're talking about Epicureanism and. Food, pleasure, in eating, and uh, yeah, we had a couple questions about what are the implications for your study, and what would you recommend to society and policymakers?
4: Well, I don't know what I would recommend to society as a whole, but uh, but if my research could uh, inspire public policy, that would really be awesome. It's really hard to be uh, heard as a researcher because. Mm-hmm. You have a little voice, right? And you publish in uh, confidential academic journals,
2: but uh, well, well, maybe a different phrasing of the question is: uh, How would you? How how has doing this study changed the way you think about food or people around you?
4: But uh, I don't think it has changed a lot the way you think about food. I don't think it would come up as a surprise for a French person. Mm-hmm. It's part of the education, and uh, I'm su- I'm usually surprised that uh, Americans are surprised by my results. <laughs> so, so to me, it seems like common sense. But in terms of uh, of a um, policy implication, ideally. Um, uh, if if it can influence uh, uh, policy implications in, uh, in Canada or in North America, that would be really great. And it's actually something that is already applied in France. So we have what we call taste classes. So in uh, elementary schools, uh, nutritionists would come to class uh, uh, one day every three months, for instance. And educate the kids about the pleasure of eating, about discriminating across different types of, states, of, of tastes, and not having a stereotypical approach about food. Not telling them, "Oh, chocolate is bad and veggies are good." Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you definitely don't want to um, dichotomize foods and telling them this is good, this is bad, and making feel, making them feel guilty about uh, getting pleasure from food. That's clearly not the solution. Just trying to be mindful, trying to appreciate food. Uh, trying to learn about new savers, trying to be curious about that. And it's something that I've not seen a lot, or maybe I've not seen at all in North America. So obviously, the uh, uh, Get Move program, you know, like they're trying to uh, tell kids to uh, have a sports activity. Yeah. Uh, uh, in in the U.S., that that's great. That's definitely part of the solution. But a complementary solution would be uh, that kind of uh, Epicurean education that you can mm-hmm. start at a very, very early age in, in childhood.
3: Mm-hmm. So you find that any of that uh, mindfulness around eating is covered in uh, home economic and food cooking classes? Do you know?
2: In North America, anyway. Or in other countries. Yes. Yeah.
4: Well, if uh, there is definitely an interest in cooking, and you can definitely uh, uh, see that in uh, in TV shows, I'm quite crazy about MasterChef Master Chef uh-huh. Junior, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, season four is uh, is starting now, and uh, I think it's fantastic. And if if you see the kids in Master Chef Junior, they uh, they have a a very, very high knowledge and high education about food and most of them are very thin and most of them seem very happy. So, yeah, if it can can change mentalities about food and uh, especially uh, trying to stop that kind of um, um, stereotypical (laughs) stereotypical approach of food, uh, bad food, good food, uh, feel guilty about what you eat, Mm -hmm. uh, that's definitely part of the solution.
3: Do you feel like people's guilt... um, keeps them in those bad habits around food and and stress eating
4: exactly so when you consider a food as a forbidden uh, something that you should feel guilty about then as soon as you're gonna feel down you're gonna f- go for what's forbidden and you're gonna over overeat what is forbidden so it's something that you see a lot in uh, resti- restrained eaters so that's another word for dieters or compulsive uh, uh, dieters or or chronic dieters people who st- Always try to lose weight. They have very, very negative associations about food. Uh, when you tell them about chocolate, c- uh, chocolate cake, they suddenly feel unhappy about it, about it because it makes them think about their weight, about mm-hmm. the fact that they try to lose weight but they fail all the time. So as soon as they feel down, they uh, they lose their dietary rules and they go for for the, the big chocolate cake and uh, they overeat and they have these binging episodes. Binge- binging episodes are clearly related to a uh, negative effect and to stress, and also to, to some extent to uh, this uh, uh, guilty feelings you have about food.
3: And you mentioned uh, interventions that people could take. What what kind of interventions do you see as useful?
4: So uh, one way is what we did in the experiment uh, uh, with Pierre Chandon is a uh, uh, trying this having this five minute training before you go to an all you can eat diner for instance but well, to begin with, you don't want to go to an all you can
2: eat diner mm-hmm. that's a terrible idea so it's just going for quantity instead of quality they're also a bad deal like the <laughs> food's not even the food's not that good they usually overcharge you for it now don't get me started we can do a whole episode about <laughs> me complaining about all you can eat deals sorry go on well no you're <laughs> right
4: like how can you give large quantities of food, make profit as a restaurant manager, and give co- good quality? It's just not possible, right? But um, where were you, where are we at? I can't oh, remember your question. Interventions. Yes. Interventions. So if you have the opportunity to choose among different portion sizes that can happen in many different restaurants, uh, have... Uh, try to try to remember what's important in food that would be the sensation the multi sensory experience of eating and that's something that you can do with your kids or with, with your friends and try to have that moment where you try to be mindful about what you're gonna eat
3: I feel like you should email your study to all the diet programs in Vancouver <laughs> and then give them all taste classes
4: well, a lot of diet that would be more fun. <laughs> A lot of dietitians and uh, nutritionists are, are are in the good direction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that a lot of these professionals would uh, would keep stereotyping foods, uh, good food by bad, bad food, and I think that the awareness of, of, of the sensations of eating and the importance of pleasure is clearly part of uh, their job. Uh, and uh, and one way to reeducate chronic dieters is to. Uh, uh, make them more acquainted to uh, the pleasure of eating and make them accept more the fact that uh, foods are delicious and they are part of your life, right? Mm-hmm.
3: So what's your next study going to be about?
4: Uh, oh, actually, I started a project about music. <laughs> so it's completely unrelated. <laughs> oh, perfect. All, <laughs> all my research is about food uh, and I try to continue in that path, but food and alcohol also uh, and how you can... Um, how expectations effect can make you drunk even though there's hardly any alcohol in your drink Mm it's one of the things that I'm working on now Uh, so as you know uh, marketing influences your expectations and if a brand of alcohol uh, uh, makes you think that you're going to be quickly drunk thinking that you're going to get drunk will actually make you drunk it's a placebo effect it's a placebo effect exactly a placebo effect Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so that's what I'm interested in that sounds interesting
2: we'll have to have you back when you Mm -hmm. when you finish that
3: we, we review a lot of breweries <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on our show.
2: Um, we should probably uh, move on so we still have time to talk about some of the other subjects on the show. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
3: Yes, thank you so much.
2: And uh, we're going to go into a song. Um, this has been... Uh, Professor Yan Cornel, is that th- that's the correct title? Doctor, Professor? Oh, uh, both. Both. <laughs> you okay. can call me Yan. <laughs> okay. Yan <laughs> was here, and uh, th- um, we're gonna go into a song. Um, but uh, thanks so much for coming on.
4: Thank you.
1: You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkameenam-speaking Musqueam people.
3: Thousands of opinions are at our fingertips. But are all opinions informed? Does your information have a source? Is your social feed based on fact? Only facts can uncover the truth. Professional journalists are committed to balanced and non-partisan reporting, to independent commentary. They cut through the spin to give you the information and perspective you need. Journalism is essential to democracy, a watchdog over the powerful, an independent voice. Journalism is more important than
2: ever. Hello, and we are back. And um, uh, thank you so much to uh, Jan Corniel for coming in. That was absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, Brenda, what are we going to talk about next?
3: Well, we're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. Did you make any?
2: I made one. It, mm-hmm. One that? Uh, well, I only made one. Uh, but it is food related. Mm-hmm. I resolved that this year I'm going to make a Christmas cake really far in advance. Well, actually, this is something Darcy briefly mentioned. My wife, my beautiful wife, uh-huh. um,
3: correspondent and beautiful, wife. And, cor-
2: and and Peter Baron James correspondent, uh, and. She had said, "Oh yeah, we should. I w- kind of want to make one for in advance, And then I made a resolution that we're going to do it this year, and we're going to make it like six or seven months in advance. How- I'm going to look into how far in advance you can make a Christmas cake, and we're going to make it. That so, far what in defines
3: advance. a Christmas cake?
2: Oh well, like it's got to have lots of fruit, dried fruits usually. Um, so um, things like currants or raisins are often in it. I've sometimes like dried apricots. Um, there's often like I, um, I always put in like. So there's some sort of nut almonds are pretty common
3: and you like this cake
2: i love christmas cake. really do you dislike christmas i cake? think
3: i've tried it once or twice i have never enjoyed it um
2: the problem might be that you are getting store-bought christmas cakes which aren't very good usually. i think
3: i had some from my grandma oh really Yeah, yeah. So apparently, when my parents got married, the thing was to have fruitcake at your wedding, Mm -hmm. but my parents hated fruitcake. And then you're supposed to save a section Mm -hmm. in your freezer for your 25th wedding anniversary or something. Whatever
2: slab of cake you had.
3: Oh, maybe that too. Anyways, they had this fruitcake in the Mm -hmm. freezer. And when we moved here from BC, from Manitoba in 1994, this cake was still in the freezer and and no one would eat it.
2: Well, yeah, because it's. I don't think it's supposed to store that long. (laughs) Or at least not if you're like... There's a certain way to store it where you have it out. It's in cheesecloth. It's constantly being soaked Uh in alcohol.
3: Okay, so you just keep dousing more and more on top.
2: Yeah. And then light it on fire. I don't think you're supposed to light it on. It's not a flambé. It's not a flambé, Brenda. Sorry, Brenda's
3: taking this (laughs) whole episode sideways.
2: Um, But yeah, this year I want to do that. I want to have a really long... Christmas cake because my mom makes Christmas cake every year but she usually only does it like one or two months in advance and
3: it gets better and better and it
2: gets better over time the longer
3: what does better mean
2: it's like more it's like the the rum flavor gets more infused into it there's like a certain mellowing of the flavors that like happens um there's lots of spices involved too and but like it kind of like all um become it becomes very different like it becomes less uh I guess less cakey Mm -hmm. and more fruity in flavor it's kind of hard to describe what a good christmas cake tastes like versus a bad christmas cake but it's more flavorful versus blandness okay and this year i want to make like a really really old one and see how if it actually improves it significantly
3: okay well next christmas will you save me a small bite yes i will perfect
2: and that's the last we're ever going to talk about christmas until next christmas
3: okay great <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
2: Um and Brenda, did you make a resolution this year?
3: I did. I made four. Four. But only one is food related. All right,
2: let's talk about that one.
3: Okay, so let me just preface this. Uh resolution one is to budget and okay. be more conscious about my money. And apparently I was spending all my money on food and beer. Uh so I, I don't want to curb So it
2: ties into your fourth resolution.
3: It it which is which is actually my third resolution. Um but yes, uh, I don't want to curb the pleasure I feel in food, but on the other hand, I want to be a bit smarter about, about my resources mm-hmm. and still eat well and eat out a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, so my resolution is to make a big pot of something once a week and not buy lunches at work.
2: How often did you buy lunches at work before?
3: Pretty often.
2: Like every day. Like every sometimes other. Sometimes
3: day? every day, but usually yeah. at least three days a week.
2: That's yeah, that's quite a bit.
3: So that's quite a bit. And then if I have something in the evening, I don't always have time to get home. So then you're like buying more slices of pizza or something upstairs. So, a it's not the healthiest, and B your your money gets spent pretty quickly. So so this week already, mm-hmm. uh, I made a huge pot of ham. And bean summer savory soup, which is an old Mennonite recipe of my grandma's. So I made a huge pot of soup, and then I made a whole bunch of really tasty pasta. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I had six lunches in my fridge by Tuesday.
2: That's great. Um, One thing I would recommend doing is that the problem with that style of taking lunches is that you sometimes get tired of the food. You do. Um, So what you do is you freeze some of – like you freeze half of it and then you do, like, a new batch. Like, when you do a new batch, then you've got, then you've got both. So I need to stock between. up. So you need to stock up. You probably need a little more. You, you might need more Tupperware. But, yeah,
3: I probably do. Yeah.
2: But, yeah. like, you can stock up on stuff like that. And then you can also intersperse that with, like, a sandwich or a, a, a two sandwiches mm-hmm. or something like that. And I've heard,
3: too, about people doing um, – like group cooks, Mm -hmm. where you can invite some people over and then you make, say, three big dishes all together Mm -hmm. and then everybody takes home a chunk of everything.
2: That sounds really smart. I would be in on that if you were doing that. yeah?
3: And do a monthly group cook. Mm -hmm. Everybody brings a recipe and the ingredients for that recipe and then everyone helps with the prep and then you all take home.
2: Yeah, that sounds sounds like a great idea because the problem with making all these lunches is that you don't want to eat the same thing all the time mm-hmm. you get tired of it but it's well, if you can mix it up that's perfect
3: and that's a really good strategy for um shall we say christmas baking mm-hmm. um is where you make one batch of cookies and then go to a swap actually and no don't say that <laughs> <laughs> he finally got it yeah, yeah <laughs> and then trade your batches of cookies because then everyone has like enough christmas baking mm-hmm. for the holidays but you've got six to eight types of cookies on your tray right but you only had to make one batch
2: yeah it's uh it's exactly that's perfect although then you need to work out like there's like there's a sweet spot where there's like a certain amount of participants and you get to take a certain amount of lunches home
3: you're right and with the cookies too then you get to make your best recipe and mm-hmm. then everyone only everyone brings their best recipe so then yeah. you just get the best cookies
2: that, yeah that sounds pretty good yeah all right cool well i'm uh I, I, i'm in if you do if you do this Great. Uh, should we go to some music? Yes, let's all go to some music. All right. Um, we are going to play um, Did You Die. And they are a Vancouver band, as all the bands on Peanut Butter and Jams are. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams. And this song is called Somewhere Girls. It's off of their album Weird Love. chick That was Somewhere Girls uh, from their album Weird Love. Oh, sorry. That was Did You Die. Um, but the song is called Somewhere Girls. The band is called Did You Die. The album is called Weird Love. I'm, I am got it right that time. Okay. Did you yeah, like it?
3: I liked it. And we have a new show that comes up after us. It's uh, hosted by Eric. And it's called The New Era. And it's hip-hop music from all over the world. So, new neighbor.
2: That sounds great. I'm really excited to have a hip-hop show on after us. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to play a real long song to end the show. Um, It's this song by a band called Losskull. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Lossel.
3: Lossel. And it's um, some of the members from people who work at Red Cat and people who are in Fond of Tigers, I think.
2: Yeah, it's pretty mellow, uh, soundscape-y. Just relax and listen to it, and then you'll get some hip-hop to wake you up. And uh, afterwards, uh, stay tuned for Thunderbird Radio Hell with Ben Lai.
3: Mm -hmm. Next week is Are You Aware? So we'll see you here. We'll talk to you in two weeks. In
2: two weeks.